This is an audio recording of the Lendit Fintech Weekly News Show. The show is streamed live on Lendit TV, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Twitter at 5 p.m. Eastern Time every Thursday. In this fast-paced show, the Lendit News team and a special guest discuss the most important fintech news stories of the past week. Okay, <laughs> now we are live. Stephanie tried to jump the gun there. Okay, my name is Peter Renton, Chairman and Co-Founder of Lended Fintech. Of Lended Fintech. Fintech Nexus. When am I going to get it right? We rebranded three months ago. Still, still. And we got fun. the right graphic on the. Uh, yeah, Todd's, Todd's got his graphic on. But anyway, this is the Fintech Nexus news show. Um, we are delighted to be joined by a special guest for the first time, Stephanie Kirkpatrick from Orem. How are you doing, Stephanie? I'm doing fantastic. Excited to be here. Thank you. Great. And uh, how are you, Todd? I'm doing well, Peter. Excited to have a, a new guest uh, yes. to our lineup. Always, always exciting. So, Stephanie, before we kick, get right into the news, why don't you give everybody a, uh, a quick intro about um, Aurum? Sure. I'm Stephanie. I'm the founder and CEO of Aurum, and we're the leading provider of a unified API for all things money movement, and especially for real-time payments. So if you're looking to get payments and money movement embedded into your platform, um, we can provide solutions in under two sprints to get you built out, and ultimately most of our payment transactions settle in less than 60 seconds. So excited to be here and obviously comment on this week's very juicy news uh, to be talking about. <laughs> yes, yes. We, we were commenting before we went on air that it has been a busy news week, lots of interesting stories to, uh, to discuss. So let's get right into it. First one I want to talk about, and I think this is a, a really big deal, didn't get as much play as I thought it was going to get. Plaid um, is partnering with Wise, and because, you know, obviously they were transfer wise, now they're just wise. Um, and basically, you know, why it's, their, their core product is transferring money across borders, but they offer um, a, lot of, a lot of their customers are using them for more than that. And now they can link, because before you had to connect a bank account to, mm-hmm. to Wise, you couldn't do it natively um, inside Wise. And now with the Plaid integration, you'll be able to, you know, do, all, all kinds of like 6,000 fintechs. I didn't even know there were 6,000 fintechs to connect to, but apparently that's what Plaid has. And so you'll now be able to do it, uh, you know, not just through a bank, not just through a traditional bank, but through uh, a fintech. So super interesting, interesting development. Uh, Todd, thoughts? I think it was a, a pretty big coup, you know, for both sides, I think, uh, to be honest with you, because. You know, I think Plaid, who's best known for being the plumbing uh, and connecting um, tissue of uh, the fintech in, fintech uh, industry. You know, one thing Wise is is seen as as more of just an international player, and I think this move connects them to so many more pieces of the uh, fintech ecosystem. It just shows you how deep Plaid's tentacles go as well. Uh, and so, I think it's a, a win win for both. I was surprised by the news. Uh, and um, I think there was a quote from from Todd Baker in there, of all people, which is, uh, I think, a, a surprise as well, because he tends to be a bit more, um, you know, not necessarily negative, but more of a, um, you know, critic of, of some fintech and, and bank moves, especially on the fintech side, who said that, um, you know, the move is a, a pretty big deal uh, and will allow 
uh, wise to um, you know gain access to to Plaid's um, you know pretty uh, big and um, deep network. So I think it's got a lot of good pieces. The FDIC stuff is um, you know not a good thing, but you know I don't think international uh, people worry about that probably as much as we do. Yep, Stephanie. You know, it's a super interesting partnership. And I think what it represents is this opportunity that I think we're seeing grow around what I'm going to call wallet to wallet transfers, um, Mm -hmm. as opposed to what we've historically thought about as, you know, bank or other types of transactions. And I think, you know, the classic use case for wise transfers isn't really to hold funds, it's to get it from point A to point B, right? So that FDIC insurance thing, TBD, if that ends up becoming material, Probably not, at least in the kind of current use case. I think it speaks to the power of two really big players seeing an opportunity. Um, it's why I love fintech, right? Because sort of anything is possible. Um, it's a matter of just willing into action the connection points that take us from sort of what we're used to every day. Um, like the, you know, like it talks about, like link a bank account and gets us out of even one more step of friction right. and into what is ultimately access to money, which is the underpinning of liquidity, financial inclusion. Um, you know, the, one of the reasons why WISE I think is so interesting is that so many Americans send money somewhere else back home to support other families. So it's a really powerful play. Uh, yeah. I'd love to see it. And I, I love the way you put it there, Stephanie, that it's sort of a wallet to wallet transfer. That's sort mm-hmm. of a different kind of um, thinking that uh, I think is probably going to be uh, uh, prevalent as, as time And it goes, goes a little bit against the recent grain of uh, kind of a rebundling of um you know financial services under you know whether it be one or or a couple of fintechs it Mm kind of goes back to that unbundling because it connects you to so many different um you know different potential options yeah yeah well it's point to point right so the idea that you don't have to like go back through a series of bank accounts and transfers and you can just do point to point that's going to change the game yeah uh, in a meaningful way for sure Sure. Okay. Let's uh, move on. Another another article that um, was doing the rounds this week. Really, this is an in depth article in Business Insider. If you subscribe, you can uh, you can really uh, learn a lot about the inner workings of what's going on at Marcus. So, basically, the, this article is about you know Goldman Sachs is struggling a little bit with Marcus, and you know we've we've all known about the executive departures. That's 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 um. No secret. They've, um, you know, they're burning cash. They obviously, we, we learned that in their quarterly, in their quarterly um, earnings reports. Um, and you know, that what one the, I learned several things in this article. Like I didn't know there was infighting between two of the leaders of Marcus. Now that was uh, that was news to me. You know, like they they they're, they're behind on product launches. You know, they're finding that this this whole kind of, you know, being a fintech. While it's all well and good, there there are a lot of challenges. And while they had every advantage in the book, they've obviously had the you know massive resources. They didn't have to worry about raising money, um, but you know clearly they're they're probably not doing as well as we all thought they were going to do. You know, th- three or four years ago, seems like they've lost their vision a little bit for what they want Marcus to be. Um, and that maybe that's tied back to some of the early departures or, or big departures they had, because it seems as if there was this this clear vision when they first launched it. And even when we had, um, you know, Swati of, of Marcus at our USA event, like there was this slow rollout and of all these products. And recently we've heard less of the product rollout, uh, more about delays. We get this article. So it seems like some of that initial vision 
has kind of either been put on hold or, or maybe they just are unsure exactly what they want it to be right now. You know, the co-heads, co-CEO thing, it's such a Goldman thing. It's a very uniquely right. Goldman thing. So is there infighting? Isn't there? I don't know. If I had a co-CEO, I'm sure we would disagree um, on a variety of things and yet still figure it out. I think the question isn't, you know, necessarily like, is, are they behind or have they lost their vision? At least not for me. Um, so much as it is, does speed to market for them actually matter? Because the embedded customer base on the investment and savings platform, the relationship with ACO um, on the retirement services side puts a pretty consequential sort of embedded install base right there. So if they want to launch a checking account, doesn't matter if it's this year or next year, right? If there's a million, two million, three million sort of active customers or close in easy prospects versus a startup who genuinely has no brand no customers and has to start at zero. So, you know, I think it remains to be seen how the vision will change under a new leadership. And I, I seem to recall that there was um, a pretty consequential payments leader who joined maybe about a year ago who came in from Uber yep. um, that I think is also going to be, you know, potentially part of this next chapter. Um, it's not a FinTech really. It's a big <laughs> bank building uh, an innovation layer. And that's interesting, uh, but I just don't think it compares to, you know, what startups are ultimately up against when they start from scratch. Yeah, and that's what this this uh, you know, article really suggested that it, you know it's, they're, they're, they've tried to be fintech like, but it's you know, they're, they're really they're still a big bank. And you know, David Solomon, the CEO, has you know really gone all in on consumer banking, and um, you know he really I don't think he can afford to have this fail. And as you say, it may not matter. I mean, the checking account was supposed to be out last year. Now they're saying it's going to be out by December. You know, it may slip, but as you say, I mean, they've got like 14 million consumer customers, which is, you know, maybe with the exception of Chime is better than bigger than just about anybody in the, in the US market. So they're, they're doing okay. Okay, moving on. Um, this is an interesting one. Tornado Cash uh, has been sanctioned by the US government. Um, it's not an easy thing because there's actually no entity Tornado Cash. It's a smart contract. It's a mixing platform. And for those I, I've, First heard about mixing platforms when I was reading Laura Shin's book, um, Crypto uh, Cryptopians, and she talked about the DAO hack, the hack that went really um, the person who stole all the ETH at the very start of the ETH rollout, and you know ran it through a mixer because what a mixer does, it basically disconnects the sender and receiver of the um, in a transaction, so you have no idea. Because everything's on the blockchain. You have no idea when you run it through a mixer who the sender and who the receiver is. It's mixing all the transactions together. So anyway, Tornado Cash is a mixer. been used supposedly, allegedly by the North Korean government. Um, it's also used by very by many people who just like privacy, don't like to see if they're moving a couple of million dollars around that they have legally um, have, that they just want to get make that private. Totally legitimate. But there's illegitimate uses as, as well. And, uh, you know, it's something that it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out because they said there is no entity of, uh, you know, called Tornado Cash Inc. that they can sanction, that they are they're doing wallet addresses and different things. They're trying to, um, to work it out. But it's going to be just so interesting uh, how this plays out. This is exactly what the U.S. government and regulators hate about crypto <laughs> and the space. I mean, th this is... You know, th this could be the poster child for what they hate and what they talk about on TV on how it's, you know, for illicit use. And we can't uh, know who's involved in transactions. And, um, you know, I mean, ultimately, there's it when we are continue or as we continue to move into this, you know, Web3 blockchain based world, 
there's going to be platforms that are the other end of the spectrum that just want all in anonymity and everything. And there'll be a, a cohort of people that use that and, you know, my keys, my crypto. And um, I think that will always exist that there's no chance that's going to be a large segment of how it's used. Uh, and it's not going to be you know regulated into existence. It's going to be on kind of the far side of the, the ledger for probably as long as we uh, are in financial services. Well, first of all, Peter, um, a huge shout out to Laura Shin. She and I were early days at Learn Best, where I started my tech career. So oh, I really? love that okay. happened to create an intersection here. Uh, her book is fantastic for mm -hmm. crypto readers. And ultimately, I mean, I think this is like the this is the sort of like you know dilemma around innovation in financial services, which is the speed at which a new concept can be created relative to the speed at which regulators can help figure out and create the the appropriate boundaries. And I think crypto. And the blockchain generally has, uh, you know, as Todd said, been sort of primed for like problems like this. Um, on the one hand, I think it's kind of thrilling to see what mixers can do and how we do think about being anonymous in some capacity um, in a world in which, you know, privacy is increasingly more important and valuable to certain users for certain reasons. On the other hand, it puts at risk foundational things that we in the U.S., especially through sanction screening and other processes, have considered sort of solid footing for the way our financial system operates with the intent to block and tackle bad actors and money laundering and the sort of entry into our system of, you know, economic protocols that don't belong. So, um, you know, I, I don't say this often, but I think that the regulatory landscape is going to be really important for crypto yep. and its ability to continue to be both mainstream and not be a place where people feel consistently defrauded. And therefore, the brilliance behind what the blockchain can solve in financial services never gets off the ground fully. Yeah, and I think that's the thing. The DeFi purists, you know, are, 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 you know, they're basically yelling at uh, at the regulators right now um, because they don't they 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 feel like this. We need to live in a def, in, a, in a decentralized world, but the reality is, um, if there's serious money at stake, the governments of the world are going to want to regulate it, and this is this is going to be. As you say, we'll see how it plays out, but I am it's, it's going to be a fantastic use case. Mm -hmm. But anyway, moving on, I want to talk about Figure. Um, feels like every two to three months, Figure comes out with another like big announcement that they've been working on. We know, obviously, we've had Mike Cagney um, speak. He's spoken, I think, at just about I think at pretty much every lender since twenty thirteen, every fintech nexus since twenty thirteen. Um, and um, you know, obviously, what he's done in uh, with Figure has has been really impressive. And now they're moving, but they've basically done the press release this week. Um, they're now getting into banking as a service, but it's all blockchain based banking as a service. They're partnering with Visa, which I think is really interesting because a whole, th the whole figure pay piece is around creating a new blockchain based payments rails. Um, I'd love to obviously get your perspective on this, uh, Stephanie. And uh, it feels like we're, you know, doing that, like the whole reason being is is real time you know, people mm -hmm. want real time payments they want to have um they don't want to pay like the figures figures you know real main kind of value prop that they're getting they're going to market with is the um is the interchange like you don't have to pay the two and a half three percent or whatever it is but uh, they're partnering with visa they figure has basically written their own core banking system on the blockchain that's basically what they've done which i think is astounding 
you know, that that, uh, that that they've done this. But uh, anyway, so Stephanie, what uh, love to get your your thoughts here. Well, I mean, I think first of all, you know, Mike Cagney has always been known for being an incredible innovator and creator. So this is no no different than I think a lot of things we've seen him touch. Uh, and ultimately, you know, as someone whose job it is is to think about the innovation and money movement, it's no surprise to me that there's the beginnings of experimentation to go fully blockchain based for aspects of money movement. I think we will end up having maybe not a full you know, move off of our uh, ACH and real-time growth settlement systems, RTP and FedNow, but we will have the addition of lots of different ways um, through stablecoin, through the blockchain um, to think differently than we do today about core rails and money movement. So I think this is the beginning of probably a category of innovation in the infrastructure space that is going to, like we just talked about, have pros and cons. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, so I think as it is new technology, partnering with like a, a substantial player gives an advantage to be able to quickly get into a place where adoption, which is going to be the primary consideration for new rails, has a chance. And I think if that happens, um, we at Orem would believe we'd support that just like all other forms of money movement. And it gets me really excited mm-hmm. because it is kind of the first of its kind um, chance to think about using the blockchain for more than just speculative investing and really get to the kind of core of what could actually improve our financial system um, in a very meaningful way. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the, I think, the most exciting thing about the using the blockchain um, is mm-hmm. if we can get banks or those in the banking system using this, then it brings down costs for consumers brings down costs for small businesses, merchants, everyone in the ecosystem uh, and moves everything at, at such a faster speed than it is now. Uh, and so right now it's, you know, as Stephanie can know more than, than I or, or even Peter on the payment side, I mean, it, it's still, it just takes too long, especially if you're a small business or a merchant and just waiting and waiting. Uh, and so to me, you know, the more stuff like this, the, the better um, I think we all are. Yep, real time payments with uh, with low transaction fees. That's a uh, and low fraud. Yeah. I mean, yeah. kind of the pinnacle here, you know. That, that, that's, <laughs> that's a world we can all look forward to. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Moving on. Um, talk about um, you know, some government action that happened. The CFPB find Digit. And remember, Digit, they're, they're a saving tool that were acquired by Opportune last year. Um, I've, I've been a big fan of what, they, of what, what they've done, um, spoken at our events in the past as well. Um, but they, find, they were fined $2.7 million over their faulty savings algorithms because basically they promised that there would be no overdrafts if you use Digit because they would proactively move, move money around um, from the savings account to the, the bank account that's actually being, being overdrawn. But I, and this is news to me. They, according to um, the CFPB, they've received, Digital received 70,000 overdraft reimbursement requests since 2017. So clearly it wasn't working. I mean, they do have, and they had, I don't know, they, they did have a very large customer base. I think it was in the millions from, from memory. Um, so obviously this is, you know, not a, not a good look. Um, you know, Opportune, who owns Digit now, said they they don't really agree, but uh, paying it anyway. Um, but you know, it's I don't know how big of a deal this is, but it's certainly not a positive thing for fintech. Definitely not a positive thing. Um, you know, it's goes to uh, you know some things aren't 
uh, I wouldn't say on the up and up, but you know, it's when you're building fast, you, maybe you, you break some things along the way. Um, mm -hmm. I think, um, and it's also important, I think for the CFPB to, to catch these things and to, um, you know, to make sure that they're giving correct oversight because ultimately fintech part of its promise has always been better outcomes for consumers in many ways. Uh, and clearly this was not a better outcome or at least what they thought they were getting. Uh, and so I think it's important that CFPB has that oversight, but I mean, it's probably not that overall that big of a deal um, probably hurts digits more than anything else. I mean, I think that the person who suffers here, Todd is, is, certainly on some level digit, right? Their, their halo and their brand is affected. But I think about the scale of 70,000 people having an overdraft. And I think about what happens when you overdraw your account as an everyday American. You probably overdraw it two to three more times that day. What causes that overdraft? So I do think there's actually, you know, pretty perilous repercussion of getting algorithmic decision-making right or wrong. And on the one hand, I think machine learning and intelligence layers can be incredibly powerful what allowed it to get to the point that the CFPB gets involved at 70,000 and not 700? I think right. that's for me, the real question. That's a good point. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I mean, sure. it, just putting everyday American households in a perilous position should be caught sooner. So what is it that is missing from the system to create that flag and to solve this problem before it gets to be, you know, sizable in nature and ultimately because powering innovation, I mean, to your point, Peter, or to Todd, we have to break things. Right. And we don't want to hurt everyday American households while doing that. So where's the balance? Yeah, particularly when you're saying you're doing the opposite. You're actually preventing them from going to being overdrawn. <laughs> like I was I was shocked when I saw that 70,000 number. So anyway, okay. moving moving on to, to more government action, we saw we had uh, Coinbase revealed this week that they have received investigate investigative subpoenas i don't know what that means exactly but it's a basic request for information uh to coinbase um on many things including their staking programs um and that's what most of the press that was around this talked about staking there was several other things they wanted that the sec um wanted information about but the staking piece you know full full disclosure i have been staking eth on coinbase for just, just, just two ETH. Not, not a huge amount of money, but for um, eighteen months now. So I'm, 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 I am part of the, the program here, and uh, you know, I, I love the fact that I, that I could earn. It was only a small amount. I think they're paying like three, three and a quarter percent, something like that. But the thing I didn't realize is that Coinbase, the revenue from staking, it's, it's, um, you know, it basically is, it's consistent revenue and it's growing revenue. And it, it, it's um, 8.5% of all revenue at Coinbase was from staking. I had no idea it was that high. So it's uh, anyway, Coinbase, another, um, you know, I want to say, I'm going to steal this from Dan Kwan because he said it last week. Oh yeah. Where, where was the SEC when they went public? Right. If they had such issues with all this, even the previous issue that I think it was last week or the week before, so they did all, you know, they filed paperwork, they went public, the SEC had to look into their business then. Uh, and so where, where was the, why is it now that it's under investigation and they allowed them to go on the public markets back then? Good question. I mean, plus one to that question, because ultimately the S1 is meant to uncover these issues. This isn't 8% yep. of new revenue that started since IPO. This is longstanding, perhaps right. growing. Um, but longstanding revenue. And I think, you know, again, it comes back to, you know, as we work all of us uh, in fintech in some type of regulatory setting, 
the way the SEC or FINRA or the CFPB or the OCC is going to come in and at what time is, is a bit unpredictable. I think, you know, we are all, always at Orem on the ready and thinking about, you know, where are the regulators going, uh, et cetera. But I think when you look at a business like this that's recently IPO'd, um, it is a really critical question of, you know, why not then, why now? And I think investigative subpoenas perhaps sound maybe more grandiose than the reality of perhaps just obtaining more information for compliance reasons. You know, I think the SEC is known for coming in and doing investigations that take sometimes years to resolve and from financial services and working in an RIA previously, I've seen this often. Often it's corrective issues that just need to happen as opposed to, you know, punitive damages that come out of it. So it'll be interesting to see where this goes. Yeah, it will be because I, you know, from where I'm, I, I hear people who deal with the SEC directly and sometimes they just, they're just not very nice. And, you know, the thing about government is the government runs a monopoly. It's a legal monopoly. They're the only, they, they are the regulator. And if you, you don't like it, there's nothing you can do about it. Um, and so I feel like, you know, they are in, they're in a position of immense power. And, um, you know, I, I, you know, you, we, I've heard lots of things. I've read things about, the you know the SEC chairman and and his aspirations and uh, you know it it it's it, it certainly anyway it, 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 there's a there's a big question mark on what's the real motivation here. is it protecting consumers who's being you know or is it just uh, the SEC trying to enforce their their power shall we say so we'll leave it at that no need to go into any more depth. Um, <laughs> But let's, we're going to end with uh, earnings. We had, uh, we actually, while we got talking about Coinbase, they also reported earnings. Horrendous, I think you could say, was their earnings. Uh, they lost $1.1 billion in one quarter. That was, that's pretty impressive. Um, but revenue, so the, in, Q, in Q, remember Q2 2021, things were rocking in the crypto world, remember? And they did $2.2 billion in, in revenue that quarter. $808 million. That's a massive drop. Um, from year, year year on year, and uh, yeah, consequently they, they're down one point. What's that? One point four billion dollars in revenue, and consequently lost a lost a bunch. But uh, you know, Coinbase. Um, you know, they they said that they've gone through cycles before, never gone through cycles like this as a public company having to report on their quarterly uh, results. But they have weathered many downturns. I mean, they've been going around for almost ten years now. So. But uh, any any thoughts there, guys? I mean, we're in the midst of uh, the crypto winter, so I guess some of it's you know not surprising. Um, though, I mean, I think the the, the numbers are eye popping um, just because of of um, you know where they were uh, the mm-hmm. last couple of years. But um, you know, I mean, this is this is going going to happen we see it even in the equities market with Robinhood. i mean how much momentum have they lost and yeah. you know, had to cut off i think it was 30-ish percent of their staff i mean i think we're seeing an inevitable sort of refactoring evaluation and ultimately you're seeing this across the board in earnings calls right i think cb insights had something interesting i don't know this morning or yesterday about the number of times that you know market conditions are coming up in earnings calls and right how to think how to think about the fact that like in the public markets this is, is really happening everywhere i think in this case businesses that are derivatives of assets under management um, do have a lot of revenue fluctuation based on how um 
the volatility of their underlying assets is being affected. And today, you know, as Todd said, the crypto winter, so to speak, is pretty brutal. Um, and, you know, as our stock market rises and falls, we see the same issue with, uh, you know, wealth management trading platforms as well, maybe just not as in the limelight, given that they're more common everyday things we've gotten used to seeing. But I, I'd say, um, you know, yes, it's an eye popping number. And I think the question is, for how long, right? At what rate does AUM tick back up? Does a new stream of revenue hit? Um, I think it'd be really, it's just a, a really interesting moment in time to watch what will be, I think, eventually a rebound here. Right, right. Okay, other, other company reporting earnings this week was Marketa. Different, very, very different uh, earnings report than what uh, Coinbase did. They had um, solid, solid quarter. The, the revenue was up 53%. Um, their, their total processing volume is you know, they're, they're, they're really a, a card, um, technology platform for debit cards and credit cards. And, uh, the total processing volume is $40 billion for the quarter. Also up over 50%. One thing that I thought was really interesting. Well, there's two things that came out that was really interesting. One CEO and founder, Jason Gardner is moving, is stepping down. They're on a CEO search right now. Um, he's going to stay on as chairman. And the other thing that was really interesting block like square cash that's what marketa what Mar- marketa par- powers the debit card for uh, for square cash and uh, the cash app i should say and um 69 of marketa's revenue comes from block so i thought that was that's one that's a huge risk to have that much revenue but clearly there's you know that's a it's a great great partnership for marketa um but uh, obviously somewhat risky well, as a growing fintech, I'm waiting for a cash app to walk into my life, and I'd love to have that problem. That's a good point. I mean, listen, a firm and Peloton are essentially the same model, right? Right. Um, yeah. there's, a, there's often, I think, Venmo and Plaid, like there's often like an X Factor customer that just happens to hit at the right time. So I think, you know, it, it certainly like it is a lot of concentration and probably a signal that as leadership changes happen and a new CEO comes in, probably time for some innovation, right? A net new product line, uh, you know, launch of some kind that begins to build that muscle for diversification away from single line of business and a lot of concentration. Okay, so the last last one to talk about is Upstart. We're going to go back to a, a pretty negative quarter. They, um, your revenue was, was, was up, but... Uh, the bottom line was down. So that Q2 of 2021, Upstart made $37 million in profit. Um, in this past quarter, they lost $30 million. Um, but, you know, th- th- and CEO Dave Girard, who obviously we've had uh, we've had speak many times, um, he's, uh, you know, basically said it's disappointing and unacceptable, and they're doing everything they can to turn this around. But, um one one interesting stat I just want to highlight: seventy three percent of all loans that were gone th- went through Upstart were instantly approved. Uh, of the of the seventy three percent of the approvals were done instantly. I thought that was a, that was a nice, that was a positive stat for them. Yep, that, that certainly was. Um, there's a lot of headwinds in fintech right now. Yeah, particularly in the Linux space. Yep. Sure. Well, and I think anytime you're using non-FICO-based underwriting and in artificial intelligence, you're dealing with two very new variables and figuring out underwriting. So on the one hand, it's opening the aperture um, to financial access, which I always think is fantastic. And I think if you look at this, it's showing that the maturity of those models doesn't reflect what happens in an economic downturn where interest rates are high, other loans may be defaulting, 
and consumers are constrained, right, at the gas pump because of inflation. And so perhaps in the 10 years prior history of financial information used to underwrite those loans, this problem of today wasn't prevalent in that data. And that's hard for machine learning. Machine learning is backward looking, not forward looking. So as we hit these bumps, those platforms always um, end up finding that they don't have the pattern recognition um, particularly, available. Particularly today where the patterns are really strange. I mean, Very strange. It's yeah. just a, a new, it's been an unusual couple of years. Anyway, that's all we have time for today. Um, Stephanie, you were great. Thank you so much. Uh, Todd, thanks as always. Before we go, though, one quick reminder. Um, we have Dealmakers West coming up on August 30th and 31st. It's happening at Laguna Beach, California, beautiful Orange County. We still have a few tickets left. Go to fintechnexus.com uh, to find out more. With that, uh, we will uh, bid you farewell and we'll be back same time next week. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everyone. See ya.